Chapter Two, My Lord at the White Hart, Part One of Black Moth by Georgette Hire, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Sir Anthony Ferndale sat before the dressing table in his room at the White Hart, idly polishing his nails. A gorgeous silk dressing gown lay over the back of the chair, and behind him Jim was attending to his wig, at the same time hovering anxiously over the coat and waistcoat that were waiting to be donned. Carstairs left off polishing his nails, yawned, and leaned back in his chair, a slim, graceful figure in cambric shirt and apricot satin breeches. He studied his cravat for some moments in the mirror, and lifted a hand to it. Salter held his breath. With extreme deliberation the hand moved a diamond and emerald pin the fraction of an inch to one side, and fell to his side again. Salter drew a relieved breath, which brought his master's eyes round to himself. "'No trouble, Jim?' "'None at all, sir.' "'Neither had I. "'Twas most surprisingly easy. "'The birds had no more fight in them than sparrows. Two men in a coach, one a bullying rascal of a merchant, the other his clerk. "'God, but I was sorry for that little man.' He paused, his hand on the rouge-pot. Salter looked in inquiry. "'Yes,' nodded Carstairs, "'very sorry. "'The fat man would appear to bully and browbeat him after the manner of his kind. "'He even blamed him for my advent, the greasy coward.' "'Yes, Jim, you are right. He did not appeal to me, C.E. Mr. Fudby. So,' ingenuously, "'I relieved him of his cash-box and two hundred guineas. A present for the poor of lose.' Jim jerked his shoulder, frowning. "'If you give away all you get, sir, why do you rob it all?' he asked bluntly. His whimsical little smile played about my lord's mouth. "'Tis an object for my life, Jim, a noble object, and I believe it amuses me to play Robin Hood, take from the rich and give to the poor.' he added, for Salter's benefit. But to return to my victims, you would have laughed had you but seen my little man come tumbling out of the coach when I opened the door. Tumble, sir, why should he do that? He was at pains to explain the reason. It seems he had been commanded to hold the door to prevent my entering. So when I jerked it open, sooner than lose his hold, he fell out onto the road. Of course I apologized most abjectly, and we had some conversation. Quite a nice little man, it made me laugh to see him sprawling on the road, though. I wish I could have seen it, Your Honor. I would have liked fine to have been beside you. He looked down at the lithe form with some pride. I'd give something to see you hold up a coach, sir. Harris foot in hand, Jack met his admiring eyes in the glass and laughed. I make no doubt you would. I have cultivated a superb voice, a trifle thick and berry, a little loud, perhaps. Ah, something to dream of a night's. I doubt they do, too he added reflectively, and affixed the patch at the corner of his mouth. "'So, a little low, do you think? But twill suffice. What's toward?' Down below in the street there was a great stirring and bustling. Horses' hooves, shouts from the ostlers, and the sound of wheels on the cobblestones. Jim went to the window and looked down, craning his neck to see over the balcony. "'Tis a coach arrived, sir.' "'That much I had gathered,' replied my lord, busy with the powder. "'Yes, sir. Oh, Lord, sir!' he was shaken with laughter. "'What now? "'Tis the curiousest sight, sir. Two gentlemen, one fat and the t'other small. "'One's all shriveled-looking like a spider, "'while t'other resembles a hippopotamus, particularly in the face. "'Well, yes, sir, he do, rather. "'And he be wearing purple. "'Heavens, yes, purple and an orange waistcoat.' "'Jim peered afresh. "'So it is, sir. But how did you know?' "'Even as he put the question, understanding flashed into Jim's eyes.' "'I rather think that I have had the honour of meeting these gentlemen,' replied my lord, placidly. "'My buckle, Jim, is it a prodigious great coach with wheels picked out in yellow? 
"'Aye, Your Honour. The gentlemen seem a bit put out, too.' "'That is quite probable. Does the smaller gentleman wear somewhat, uh, muddied garments?' "'I can't see, sir. He stands behind the fat gentleman. "'Mr. Bumblebee. Jim?' "'Sir?' Jim turned quickly at the sound of the sharp voice. He found that my lord had risen, and was holding up a waistcoat of pea-green pattern on a brilliant yellow ground, between a dusted finger and thumb. Before his severe frown Jim dropped his eyes, and stood looking for all the world like a schoolboy detected in some crime. "'You put this—this this monstrosity out for me to wear?' in awful tones. Jim eyed the waistcoat gloomily, and nodded. "'Yes, sir.' "'Did I not specify cream ground?' "'Yes, sir. I thought—I thought that twas cream.' "'My good friend, it is—it is—I cannot say what it is. And pea-green!' he shuddered. "'Remove it!' Jim hurried forward and disposed of the offending garment. "'And bring me the broidered satin. Yes, that is it. It is particularly pleasing to the eye.' "'Yes, sir,' agreed the abashed Jim. "'You are excluded this time,' added my lord with a twinkle in his eye. "'What are our two friends doing?' Salter went back to the window. "'They've gone into the house, sir.' "'No, here's the spider-gentleman. He do seem in a hurry, Your Honour. "'Ah,' murmured his lordship, "'you may assist me into this coat. Thanks.' With no little difficulty, my lord managed to enter into the fine satin garment, which, when on, seemed moulded to his back, so excellently did it fit. He shook out his ruffles and slipped the emerald ring on his finger with a slight frown. "'I believe I shall remain here some few days,' he remarked presently, "'to, uh, allay suspicion.' He looked across at his man as he spoke, through his lashes. It was not in Jim's nature to inquire into his master's affairs, much less to be surprised at anything he might do or say. He was content to receive and promptly execute his orders, and to worship Carstairs with a dog-like devotion, following blindly in his wake, happy as long as he might serve him. Carstairs had found him in France, very down upon his luck, having been discharged from the service of his late master owing to the penniless condition of that gentleman's pocket. He had engaged him as his own personal servant, and the man had remained with him ever since, proving an invaluable acquisition to my lord John. Despite a singularly wooden countenance, he was by no means a fool, and he had helped Carstairs out of more than one tight corner during his inglorious and foolhardy career as a highwayman. He probably understood his somewhat erratic master better than any one else, and he now defined what was in his mind. He returned to that glance with a significant wink. "'Twas them gentlemen ye held up to-day, sir?' he asked, jerking an expressive thumb toward the window. "'Hm! Mr. Bumblebee and friend. It would almost appear so. I think I do not fully appreciate Mr. Bumblebee. I find his conduct rather tiresome. But it is just possible that he thinks the same of me. I will further my acquaintance with him.' Jim grunted scornfully, and an inquiring eye was cocked at him. "'You do not admire our friend?' "'Pray, do not judge him by his exterior. He may possess a beautiful mind.' but I do not think so. No, I really do not think so. He chuckled a little. Do you know, Jim, I believe I am going to enjoy myself to-night. I don't doubt it, Your Honour. Twere child's play to trick the fat gentleman. Probably, but it is not with the fat gentleman that I shall have to deal. Tis with all the officials of this charming town, and I mistake not. Do I hear the small spider returning? Salter stepped back to the window. I, sir, with three others. Precisely. Be so good as to hand me my snuff-box and my cane. Thank you. I feel the time has come now for me to put in an appearance. Pray bear in mind that I am new-come from France, and journey by easy stages to London, and cultivate a stupid expression. 
"'Yes, that will do excellently.' Jim grinned delightedly. He had assumed no expression of stupidity, and was consequently much pleased with this pleasantry. He swung open the door with an air, and watched Sir Anthony mince along the passage to the stairs. In the coffee-room the city merchant, Mr. Fudby by name, was relating the story of his wrongs, with many an impressive pause, and much emphasis to the mayor, town clerk, and beadle of Lewes. All three had been fetched by Mr. Chilter, his clerk, in obedience to his orders, for the bigger the audience the better pleased was Mr. Fudby. He was now enjoying himself quite considerably, despite the loss of his precious cash-box. So was not Mr. Hedges the mayor. He was a fussy little man who suffered from dyspepsia. He was not interested in the affair, and he did not see what was to be done for Mr. Fudby. Further, he had been hailed from his dinner, and he was hungry, and, above all, he found Mr. Fudby very unattractive. Still, a high-road robbery was serious matter enough, and some course of action must be thought out. So he listened to the story with an assumption of interest, looking exceedingly wise, and at the proper moments uttering sounds betoking concern. The more he saw and heard of Mr. Fudby, the less he liked him. Neither did the town clerk care for him. There was that about Mr. Fudby that did not endear him to his fellow-men, especially when they chanced to be his inferiors in the social scale. The beadle did not think much about anything. Having decided unrightly that the affair had nothing whatever to do with him, he leaned back in his chair and stared stolidly up at the ceiling. The tale Mr. Fudby was telling bore surprisingly little resemblance to the truth. It was a much embellished version, in which he himself had behaved with quite remarkable gallantry. It had been gradually concocted during the journey to lose. End of chapter 2, part 1 Read by Sibella Denton For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.